those of you who are here regularly, just before I begin, um, you'll know that very often, in fact, 99 times out of 100, there'll be points coming up on the screen. Sorry, that's not points as in scoring me out of 10, I mean sermon points. Um, hopefully we never get to that. Um, please don't be staring daggers into the back of Susanna's head, wondering where the sermon points are. There aren't any this evening, okay, just so you know. I want to talk on this theme. Only our sinfulness makes sense of Christ's sacrifice. Only our sinfulness makes sense of Christ's sacrifice. I wonder, are you someone who, very much like me, longs to see God powerfully at work in this nation as he has been in times past. You long to see times of spiritual revival again in the UK. You long to see many coming to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being added to the church. You would long for the day when we as a nation live in accordance with God's truth rather than being dead set against it. Because you know that the scriptures teach that it's righteousness which exalts a nation. Proverbs chapter 14. I have a question. Is there anything that we need to change that in changing it might help to bring about revival? Can we change things? The way we do things as a church, for example. That in changing it, it might help to bring about revival. Our natural tendency is to look straight away at what we do and how we do it. So, for example, what about our Sunday worship? Is there anything that we could change that might aid revival? Should we be more contemporary, whatever that means to you, in how we do things? Do we somehow need to try and make it easier for the outsider and for the unchurched? Do we need to change our focus, change our style, change the way the preaching is done, change the way we present the gospel to people? Do we need to try and find ways of making the gospel more relevant now, believe me, I've thought about all of these kinds of things long and hard over many years. Really? Some of you might be thinking, because nothing much has changed. No, it hasn't. And perhaps, because not much has changed, you might assume that actually I, I never consider those kinds of things. But actually, that's not the case. So if I do think about those kinds of things, why hasn't much changed at Belvedere Road Church over the years? Because my conclusion in studying these issues is that those kind of what we might call external things are not the things that bring revival. 
They never have been. They might make a certain church more popular, but don't mistake popularity for revival. And what a grave sin for any church to covet being popular. That's a great sin, you know, to covet popularity. What a grave temptation it is for a pastor to covet popularity. And how and why have I come to these kinds of conclusions? Well, actually, it's very simple. When you read through the New Testament and when you read through church history, it becomes as plain as day that tinkering with external things, that's never been the cause of revival, ever. Let's ask another question, but let's phrase it a little bit more differently. Is there anything that God might desire to see in us, which right now he doesn't? And when he does, he might use us in bringing about such revival. Well, that puts a very different shade and tone on things, doesn't it? And questions like that require serious consideration, don't they? What might be the answer? Even is there an answer? Is there? Well, I want to suggest that when you read through the New Testament and through church history you can find something quite specific regarding those kinds of questions. Whenever you find examples where men and women and boys and girls are being converted in far greater numbers than is typically the case, there are very often certain traits that can be observed in the Lord's people who God is using. Revival is obviously a very particular outpouring of God's spirit because it's a spiritual battle that we're in. It requires God to do in each individual who will be saved that spiritual work which God alone can do. But you know that, you're intelligent people and you read your Bible, you know that. What you also always find is prayer. And especially the corporate prayer of the church. Read your Bibles. Read church history. You'll see that these things are so. So for example, in Acts chapter 4 at verse 31, we read these words, and when they had prayed, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken because the Lord's people had gathered together to pray. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Then we read, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There are multitudes believing. But what's been happening the church is preaching the gospel after they had prayed. And who prayed? The assembled church prayed. 
It was the whole church who gathered to pray for Peter in Acts chapter 12. Whenever any important decisions or circumstances are confronted by the church, as you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see that prayer, corporate prayer, God's people joining together, coming together to pray, always lies at the heart of everything that they do. So why, for example, does our church constitution, for those who join us in membership, why does, within the constitution, why does it lay upon members the duty and responsibility to do all that you can to make sure that you're at the church prayer meeting? Why have we included that? Because the elders love flaunting their authority and playing big brother? Because we look at it as some sort of religious ritual that you all have to adhere to? No. Because God has established a special place when the church meets together to pray. Things happen when the church meets together to pray. Read through the Gospels and note the role of prayer in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The references to him spending long hours in prayer, sometimes right through the night, or rising very early in the morning while it's still dark in order to pray. Note those times in his ministry when great outworkings of his power are evident to many, many people and notice the link between those times and when he spent much time in prayer. And when you read through church history, you'll find a similar pattern. So very often God has been at work in and through the church after his people have been under a great burden to pray. Our problem today is that we want God to give himself to the work of revival, but we're not prepared to give ourselves to it in the place of prayer. That's one of the problems. But there's something else. And for this, I want to quote a man who, during the 20th century, uh, was certainly considered by many to be one of the most eminent preachers of his generation. For some, the most eminent preacher of his generation. For some, the most preeminent in the whole of the 20th century, and that's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, he knew his church history well. Listen to what he said. Go ahead and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. It's all right to get all carried away with what happens at the end of the story. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. This is his observation from reading church history. They begin to see what a terrible and appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. That's his observation. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God, how terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival, says Lloyd-Jones, but that some of the people, especially in the beginning, 
have had such visions of the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Wow. Read reports of real, real revival. One of the things that you'll frequently discover is that within the existing congregations, sometimes in their Sunday services, sometimes in their prayer meetings, there sweeps over them an extraordinary conviction of sin. And it comes across them and it comes upon them with great conviction. In the famous Welsh revivals, a common observation that was made was that as people first came to faith, there was this remarkable conviction of sin before a holy God. Many were reduced to tears in their services, openly confessing and repenting of their sins. And you see, when you do that, how much greater then does God's grace in Christ appear? How much greater God's love? How more glorious the merits of Christ, crucified and risen, that he can deal with sins like this, that he could deal with a sinner like me. You see, it isn't, read your history, read the Bible. It isn't the froth and bubbles of perking up Sunday worship. It isn't having a preacher who can tickle people's ears and scratch where they say they're itching. Revival comes when God's people take seriously the things that matter most to God. Like having prayerful, broken, contrite, repentant hearts. That's when revival comes. That's what we read in the Bible. That's what we read in our history books. Remember that woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee who we just read about? Crying, weeping tears as she realized and understood the depths of her sin and therefore the depths of the love and grace that she had found in this Jesus, that someone like her could be forgiven. Simon knew all about this woman. Jesus knew all about this woman. She knew only too well the kind of woman she had been. What was it that Jesus said of her? She loves much because she knows just how much she's been forgiven. She's understood the depth of her sin. And she's realized just what it's taken to secure forgiveness for that. Sometimes when you hear preachers preach, when they speak of sin, they will, for example, compare it to rust on an old machine. And all that sin is doing is like the rust on that machine. It's just stopping it from working as smoothly and as efficiently as it should be. That's what sin is. It, it just stops you from being 
as complete as you might otherwise be. It just stops you from living a fulfilled life. That's all that sin is. And that's all that sin is doing in your life. Your life just isn't as fruitful and productive as it might otherwise be. If you'll just let God clean you up, then how much better, how much more smooth, how much more efficient everything will be for you in your life. Well, there are a few elements of half-truth buried in those things, but that's not the gospel that's presented in God's word. If that's all sin is, something that prevents you from living to your full potential, if sin is only about the effect that sin is having in you and nothing more, then why did Jesus go through such horrendous suffering and die? What was the point of that? If your only problem is that you're not quite as good as you could be, why all the suffering? Why all the agony? Why death? If that's all sin is. If that's all sin is, then what Christ endured seems to be completely out of proportion with the problem that he's apparently solving. Here's the thing, you see. When believers have a really deep awareness of guilt and shame over their sin, when sinners have a really deep awareness of their guilt and shame because of their sin, that's when the gospel comes into its proper focus. That's when it's clear why it was that Jesus suffered the way he suffered. That's when it becomes clear that the horrendous treatment that Christ experienced at the hands of wicked men was so necessary. Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed. I hear my mocking voice calling out with the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there till it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The greater my sense of my sin, the greater my understanding of the immensity of his grace and love toward me. And the greater my sense of sin, the more exalted Christ becomes in my life. The greater the sense of my sin, the greater the debt that I owe him to give him my all and to live for him. I may not know, I cannot tell, what pains he had to bear, but I believe it was for me. He hung and suffered there. He died just to bring purpose into my life. He died just to bring purpose into my life. Well, that's not altogether wrong thinking, but that's not what required Christ to suffer and die. He died that I might be forgiven. 
Because my sin is against God. What sin has done to me is almost irrelevant compared to what my sin has done against God. He died to make me good. Because there's not a single good thing in me. Because right now I'm just a stinking wretch of filth before this holy God. But he died to make me good. That I might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. How big must that price have been? How big must that price be? Look at the size of the price that Jesus has to pay. And then you see the size of your sins before a holy God. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let me in. Isn't that glorious? This is the gospel. Because my sin is about the great gulf of separation between me and God. My sin is about the vast extent of my transgressions against him. My sin is about the great weight of his condemnation that is upon me. And in my sins, I am the cause of it. Here's a man, said Jesus, who owed another man two years' wages. More money probably than he'd ever be able to repay. And the man to whom he owes this great debt has the full force of the law on his side actually to throw him in prison and to take his wife and children as slaves until the debt is paid, if ever it's paid. And here's a second man. And he only owes him 10 weeks wages, 10% of the first. And the man to whom they both owe money, well, they plead for his mercy, they plead for his leniency, they plead his forgiveness, and the man to whom this money is owed decides to forgive them both, cancels out their debt and releases them from it. Which of these two men will love him the more, asks Jesus. Which of these two men will regard him more highly, speak of him more highly, jump to his defense more quickly, always feel their debt to him more keenly? Well, the answer is as plain as the nose on your face, the one who was forgiven much. Only the depth of our sinfulness makes sense of the cross. And only the vastness of God's love and grace and mercy in what he was prepared to do to secure our forgiveness makes sense of the cross. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place in my place just a bit rusty and not working too good no in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon my forgiveness with his blood hallelujah what a savior guilty 
vile, helpless, me, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, full redemption, full forgiveness. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. When the church regains her sense of the sinfulness of her sins, only then does the depth of the love and the grace and the mercy of God begin to be seen as clearly as it should be seen. And the true wonder and glory of Christ capture our hearts. And when a church like that begins to pray, when her members give themselves to earnestly plead with their God and Saviour in confession and repentance of their own sins and on behalf of those who are still lost and dead in their trespasses, Maybe that's the kind of church that God is waiting to hear pleading with him in prayer. Maybe then God will hear and answer as he's heard and answered in the past. Maybe then God will move once more as we long to see him move. And maybe it needs to begin right here 